0: Welcome to episode 147 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus.
1: I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University.
0: I'm Gary Forenchick, a general internist and professor of
2: medicine at Michigan State University.
3: Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPalms. You know that I'm a little bit of a history nut, and anniversary dates are something that always intrigue me. I just, I just finished reading John Meacham's book, Franklin and Winston, which was a really re- well-written uh, story about the um, friendship, both personal and professional, that arose between Churchill and FDR. And, and today we're recording actually on FDR's actual birthday. He was born on this date in 1882, which ironically is also the anniversary of um, Hitler's assumption of as the Reich Chancellor in Germany. So it's just really strange, weird dates
0: like that. <laughs> I, I will we're all giggling a little bit, and yeah, thank you, Henry, for that. <laughs> On this podcast, we're going to talk about poems. If you want to get them all, subscribe to Essential Evidence Plus. You get a poem every day plus a great primary care-oriented reference. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update, including those about historical figures or those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. You can, as always, you can get CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. Just for listening, go to IFP.com and click on their education webpage. This week, we're going to talk about TENS for pain after cesarean delivery, cholinesterase inhibitors and the risk of falls and injuries, a meta-analysis of the new Alzheimer's drugs, and telephone delivery of bad news. Kate, let's talk about TENS.
1: Let's talk about literally anything besides Henry's lead in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have an interesting one this week. Uh, I have a group of investigators who sought to determine whether a proprietary TENS device is effective for an interesting outcome, reducing opioid pain medication prescription in post-operative patients. So they randomized 134 patients who had delivered either a singleton or a twin pregnancy via cesarean delivery, between 22 or 24 weeks gestation. So the patients got either this non-invasive bioelectronic device or a sham device that was identical looking and feeling. It gave a sensation or vibration that was identical but did not deliver the electrical current. That is supposedly the way it works. A trained healthcare provider applied three 12-minute treatments near the surgical incision, the first within two hours post-op and then approximately 12-hour intervals until the time of hospital discharge. The placement of the two probes as a two-probe device was changed every two minutes during the 12-minute treatment. Analysis was by intention to treat. The primary outcome was, as I mentioned, opioid medication intake during hospitalization. Again, I think that's an interesting outcome. I'll talk about that again later. So patients in the genuine genuine device group used less opioid pain medication before hospital discharge. The mean morphine milligram equivalent, MME, was 20 versus 38. That's only significant as long as you don't round. It had a p-value of 0. 0.46. On post-op day two, which was when most of the patients in the group was were discharged, they had similar levels of reporting a moderate or severe pain on a standardized score within the past 24 hours. It's 85% versus 91%. Again, most of these folks had at least moderate pain. Uh, the P there was uh, 0, uh, sorry, 0.43. So again, that's the same. Uh, at discharge, 10% of the patients who got the genuine device were prescribed opioids versus 25% who were assigned to the sham device. I do want to mention that, that those both those numbers are quite low uh, compared to what happens, I think, in most postpartum units where most folks who have a cesarean delivery do get at least a couple of tablets of Norco or uh, oxycodone or whatever is used um, on those units. The patients in the genuine device group were also prescribed lower quantities with a median difference of 7.5 MME, maybe not a huge difference in my opinion. I have a few concerns about this one before I jump in with both feet and start using TENS for postoperative pain. I can't quite make sense of all of these results. For me, it's not clear if the equivalent pain scale results means that their pain was the same, but relieved by the TENS unit, or if it was the same, but they got fewer pain medications on discharge anyway. I would be curious to see info about the effectiveness of the masking in this study, whether any of the participants or researchers uh, or even adjudicators could guess which group the participants were in and whether that could affect the outcome. I do wonder if it, if it wasn't quite as efficient as they thought it was. I obviously don't object to this sort of low harm, pharma-free intervention, but I do worry a little bit about using skin zaps as analgesia after major <laughs> abdominal <laughs> surgery. <laughs> I couldn't find any information on cost or reimbursement, which gives me pause, mostly because I'm a cynical and awful human being who's been in the healthcare system for a little bit too long. So it is hard to imagine anyone going to invest in a trained medical professional to apply a three 12-minute treatment, sorry, three 12-minute treatments for every post cesarean delivery patient for twelve every 12 hours during their entire recovery, which is two to three days in the hospital. That's just a lot of person investment time. Uh, but, Henry, perhaps you're less cynical than I am. Huh. What do you think? <laughs> well,
3: I, I don't know about less cynical, but first and most important, Kate, you are not an awful human being.
1: Thank you. You are
3: one of the kindest people I've ever known. So.
1: You should expand your pool of... <laughs> he
0: doesn't get out much.
1: <laughs> I, I'll take him back. Actually, I might be the nicest person on this recording session. Right no, there you go.
3: Okay. That's, that's a, that's a very room. Room. Yeah. <laughs> So... I don't know what to make of this study either. Uh, there's there was a statement vague without any real data in the in the paper that basically said that both groups had improvements in pain, but the difference, the net change, was not clinically important. So yeah, I don't know exactly how much or the degree of, of pain relief that they they achieved. That was nowhere in the paper itself. I'm also a little bit concerned that on day two that the proportion of individuals who still had moderate to severe pain was eighty five and ninety one percent which is sounds to me like the stuff completely failed until you look and see well, moderate pain was you know four out of ten on their ten point scale, so i I don't know what to make of of that. Other than, yeah there was a modest reduction in the morphine equivalent daily doses, which I don't know what that what to make of that and only a quarter of the individuals who got the sham tens required any rescue th- um, analgesia so I this seems almost like a nothing burger to me) <laughs>
0: Harry, do you agree? It's well,
3: you know, I was going to say the same
2: thing. I wasn't going to quite use that phrase, but this, this is my top 10 underwhelming study that we've reviewed in the last year. So uh, the results seem ex- extremely underwhelming to me, but I do have a suggestion. Mark's got another knee replacement coming up soon. Why don't we try it on him? We could do it in a
0: voice. You know, I was just thinking the same thing. And, and uh, yeah, because I was taking oxycodone post-op for about five or six days. And um, my wife wishes I would have taken more. <laughs> 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 but it's doing well now. Doing well. Five weeks post-op. Doing well. Got the second one scheduled. So yeah, we'll, we'll give that a try. I'll see if there are my surgeons into that. Cool. Okay. Kate, I think it's your turn to give us a quiz. Question. Oh,
1: yeah, sure is. A quiz question this week is, which of the following was the most commonly reported reason for cannabis use among people who reported medical use of cannabis in a 2022 study? Was it A, depression, B, anxiety, C, insomnia or sleep use, D, pain, or E, stress? Stay tuned.
0: All right. Thanks, Kate. Henry, um, tell us about cholinesterase inhibitors, an old drug for Alzheimer's, and we're going to talk about some new ones next.
3: Yeah, so this question basically tries to address whether or not cholinesterase inhibitors increase the risk of falls in individuals who are at risk, specifically those who have neurocognitive disorders. This was published uh, in November in Age and Aging. It's a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. So if we just step back and think about anticholinergic drugs, those that cause the dry mouth and blurred vision, have been associated with progressive um, uh, cognitive impairment and falls in the elderly. And the cholinesterase inhibitors, which are used in a similar at-risk group, should have the opposite effect, but we don't know about the rates of fall. So these researchers, they combed multiple databases to try to see whether or not that was the case. So they ultimately included 53 randomized trials with over 25,000 participants. Now, most of these studied denepazil, but there was a, a galantamine and rivastigmine were also represented in these. Uh, The studies incorporated individuals with Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, mild cognitive impairment, or traumatic brain injury. So a nice spectrum of individuals. And as a result, the age range from 41 to 86 years of age. Most of the studies were in community settings, so again, a little bit more generalizable in general, and only two of the studies were thought to be high risk of bias, so generally pretty decent quality studies. Well, what did they find? Well, it turns out that those adults who were taking the cholinesterase inhibitors were less likely to have falls. Now, not terribly uh, exciting difference, 5.3% versus 6.3%. Again, another nothing burger, if you will. Um, And more importantly, though, they also had more episodes of syncope, 1.5% versus uh, just under 1%. So number needed to treat, if you will, for fall prevention would have been about 100. On the other hand, the number needed to harm for syncope was about 140. More importantly, though, was looking at the rates of injuries and fractures, which were pretty much the same in both groups, 5% for overall injuries and just under 2% for uh, fractures. So I guess this is probably just more reassuring that the cholinesterase inhibitors don't really increase the risk of falls and specifically don't do anything in terms of uh, fractures or injuries, especially in a group that's already at high risk for falls and injuries.
0: Good stuff, Henry. You know, I I like that we're seeing increasingly meta-analyses of harms and not just of benefits. And, you know, it's obviously very important, particularly for, you know, interventions and and medications, that we look at equally at both. And I think that's good. You know, and you you mentioned that the only two studies were at high risk of bias. These were mostly pharma-sponsored studies, and they generally are well designed if you tick off the boxes of randomization and allocation concealment and all that stuff. What they often don't do well is choose the right comparison. And so, you know, uh, it made me think that our next study should be, Henry, you know, if you're into this, a network meta analysis comparing all of the approved drugs for Alzheimer's, comparing the monoclonals to, you know, these drugs um, and seeing what we can learn about that. I'm, I'd be kind of curious about that. Kate, Stay anyone? tuned.
1: Yeah, I'm curious uh, how the cholinesterase inhibitors would reduce the risk of fall.
3: Well, the the, uh, the notion being that if the if it's if uh, cholinesterase inhibitors should increase the effect of um, of acetylcholine as opposed to the anticholinergics, which would decrease that. Effect. So so that's. <laughs> Blah 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 blah. It's
1: like the residents when I'm What do you think's wrong with the patient? I, mean, I understand. I understand the concept, but I don't understand oh, how yeah. that would, how that would reduce the risk of fall. Well,
0: well not only, only that, is chemistry. You know, I'm, not,
2: I'm not happy that it increases the risk of syncope. And oh, by the way, how do you have syncope without falling? I, I'm a little confused here. It was my fault. <laughs>
3: Yeah, some of the studies okay. I think used sync define syncope as feeling severely dizzy without necessarily going to ground. They must have,
2: obviously. Yeah.
0: All right. So um, the next study is falls into the category which we like, my favorite category of shameless self-promotion. Henry and I did a meta-analysis of the new Alzheimer's monoclonal antibodies, and it was just published last week in the January issue of Annals of Family Medicine. Uh, So those of you who are members of the AFP can get that for free. It's online. I think it's online for everybody free. Uh, These these drugs, as our, our listeners know, target the amyloid plaques in the brain. And the idea is that these plaques are causal and that if we remove them, we can improve cognition and function or, you know, at least I guess slow its decline. So we did a big search. We found 19 publications uh, randomized trials with over 23,000 participants. They all had varying stages, usually mild or mild to moderate Alzheimer's. And there were eight different monoclonal antibodies that targeted amyloid. Um, two of them, lecanemab and aducanumab, uh, Lequembi and aduhelm, have been approved by the FDA. So we looked at both benefits and harms. And these studies used lots and lots of different scales to measure benefits. Some looked at function, some looked at cognition, some looked at both. And for each one of these scales, there were about eight or nine of them between the, the 19 studies, we looked for something called the minimum clinically important difference, or MCID. Um, so how much of a change is needed in that scale for a patient or a caregiver to actually notice and say, hey, mom's doing better, you know, or mom's not, you know, I'm, I think this, this is really working. Um so, for example, there's a dementia clinical dementia rating sum-of-boxes scale. I don't know why they call it sum-of-boxes, but it's 18 points, 0 to 18 points. And the developers of that scale did some work and said a one-to-two-point difference was needed for it to be noticeable. So on average, all of these drugs, the difference between the drugs and placebo was only 0.18 points, so way less than the one-to-two points needed. If you just looked at aducanumab, the difference was also 0.18 points for lacanumab, 0.43. Again, well under the one to two points that you'd need to notice a difference. Mini mental state exam, we all know about the mini mental state. Uh, Two to three point difference is needed on a 30 point scale. Uh, Again, these drugs were way below at the average 0.3 points, 0.25 for aducanumab. So same story for the ADS COG scales. Uh, very small changes well below the MCID. Now, if you look at harms, any MRI-detected edema was a lot more common, relative risk of 10, a number needed a harm of nine, uh, as was any MRI-detected hemorrhage, number needed a harm of 13. Um, symptomatic brain edema was also about six times more common with treatment. Uh, there was fortunately no overall difference between groups and mortality, except for one of them, Bapinuzumab, number needed to harm, there was about a 1% difference in mortality, number needed to harm of 100. So for one of the drugs, there actually was higher mortality in the intervention group. So bottom line is that while there is a slight slowing of the decline in cognition and function with these drugs, and these were 18-month studies, it's well below what would be noticeable by patients or caregivers. The harms are significant, and of course the cost and the burden of monitoring, having to get regular infusions, having to get regular MRIs, is, is pretty significant on an already burdened group. So, Gary, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me <laughs> <everywhere> <laughs> no, I, I was about ready to compliment
2: you on your pronunciation until you got to that last one. So yeah, yeah, the last I'm, one. I'm backing off on my compliment. Okay,
0: well, I, I expect that.
2: No, really good work for you guys. I mean, this is, you know, the amyloid hypothesis to me makes sense. Certainly, targeting amyloid seems to make sense from a pathophysiological rationale. But uh, two things. Number one, this is second in line for my most underwhelming intervention, that study, intervention, uh, because it just basically just seems to have very, very little effect, a lot, a lot of potential harm. My, my one question, uh, Mark, to you, and maybe you don't know this, these are 18-month studies you mentioned. Is it possible? If we extended the duration of observation out to two, three, four years, uh, that we might start seeing some noticeable improvement in cognition, function, etc., in those who are given versus those who are not given the drug.
0: Yeah, so there were you know eighteen months of, and it was let's say for ad educa- for uh, lecanemab, which was the best. Uh, the difference was 0. 0.4 points, and you need to get to one to two. So conceivably after four years or so you might hit that exceed that MCID so after four years um, and it certainly is possible that there's a distribution in the treatment group and that some patients do have a higher than you know obviously are more than 0.43 but an equal number or less so yeah that's possible and um, you know I think the, the concern is that this uh, we've been putting all of our eggs into of the treatment bat into the treatment basket for uh, amyloid, and that I don't think it clearly fully explains the causal you know, pathways behind Alzheimer's. Um, so yeah, it is possible if you extend it four or five years. There's also the uh, claim that, well, if you just started earlier before the plaque was really forming, then you could prevent it. There was another trial, uh, I think it was Dunanumab, and they had, it was like a five-year trial of people who had preclinical, they called it preclinical Alzheimer's. So they had pretty normal cognition, but they had some of these plaques. And after five years, absolutely no benefit. Mm-hmm. So I think what it says is researchers need to stop focusing only on amyloid and think about other, you know, other options. So anyway, yeah, Kate?
1: Yeah, I, I was going to say something about preclinical dementia, but we won't even. Um, <laughs> Getting a
0: little close to home. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so was all of this data in the original studies, they, they included all of these, the patient reported or family reported scales?
0: So they, all of these data, yeah, we used all the published data. Uh, we did not have any access to unpublished data. Um, but yeah, that was all in these, and you know, some, some, they all use different combinations of scales and scores. So in some cases there were like eight studies that use one scale and a different group of 10 that used a different scale. Most the harm reporting was pretty similar.
1: Because I remember reading these, and I, we, we talked about a bunch of them um, the first time around, and they were looking at the really most disease-oriented outcomes, if I remember. They were all like, you know, number of tau plaques and amount of amyloid, uh, you know. that. So it wasn't that the data wasn't there. It was just that it was it, it looked like this. Is that right?
0: There were a lot of studies that we didn't include that just focused on how much plaque was reduced yeah. or what, what ch- imaging changes did we see. And we didn't use those. We were really trying to focus on true patient oriented outcomes in terms of benefits and harms. And another thing that Henry has pointed out, and we actually had a conversation with uh, some folks from the manufacturer who called us up and um, this was a while ago. And Henry, um, you know, if you want to tell you the the, the idea that, Hey, are there some people, a significant number of people who have a clinically important benefit, you know, and they haven't ever reported that in any of these trials. You know, if you define this minimal clinically (coughs) important difference, and by the way, the articles that tell us what the MCID is were written by people from the companies in many cases. So they knew very well what these were, but they never reported what percentage of patients in each group exceeded that MCID. And that's something, you know, kind of missing in action. I, I Those data are there. They have the data. They could calculate it. Maybe it's not reported because there was no difference. Maybe it, it wasn't. I don't know why. I mean, I'm, I don't want to go all tinfoil hat, but you know, Uh, There certainly are cases where companies have not reported things that were not favorable and they've reported the data that are most favorable. We, We should look, we could look at the original clinical trial registry and see what did they say they were going to report and see if that was originally planned. I
3: actually went through the registries uh, to uh, identify a number did. of un- um, of course I did, <laughs> of course and, did. And, and, <laughs> and identify some of the studies uh, to see if there were any unpublished studies, and most of them uh, were really planning to report the average changes in uh, amyloid or in some of these scales. So none of them actually were planning to report on the proportion of individuals who achieved any clinically important differences. So all of this just suggests to me that if we go back to Koch's postulates, I think we still teach that in archaic medicine history courses, that if you take away these putative causative agent, the disease should get better. So that raises to me the question, is amyloid really the disease or is it part of the compensation? Is it part of the repair? And are we actually, and and so as a result of removing things, nature abhors a vacuum. And as a result, short term, you're going to see bleeding and edema and all of those harms that that accumulate as a result of that process.
0: Yeah. And I think the data we don't have also is the trajectory for that bleeding and edema, is that something that is linear, that just continues every year they take the drug, or is that something that shows up early, and then once the plaque has been removed after a year, year and a half, maybe that goes away? Uh, We don't know that. We don't have
2: that. that You know, know, one other quick thing, and this is true for all pharmaceuticals, there's always off-target effects, right? So, you have a, a postulated effect on one particular target, you're hoping will be beneficial, but that may be negated by off target effects by any drug. And this is a very, very common paradigm uh, in, in pharmacotherapy of almost any drug. you got to really, you know, we have to really look for those off target effects and could they be negating any potential beneficial effect? All
0: right, good stuff. And Gary, it's your turn to talk about disclosure of bad news over the phone versus in person. The, yeah, in the, in the journal a Journal of, of this
2: podcast are going to uh, remember, I'm sure quite vividly, that two weeks ago, I reviewed an article on best practices related to patients who have serious illness, such as cancer, who then also continue to express seemingly unrealistic hopefulness. Uh, and the article from two weeks ago discussed this concept of prognostic awareness, which is an understanding by the patient uh, of their likely um uh, you know, prognosis, and being able to integrate that both cognitively and emotionally. The reason I was interested in that, because I was facing a patient the next day who uh, had stage four pancreatic cancer. I was going to see them in the office. I noticed on the hospital note that the patient himself had refused to see hospice. So I, I was making an assumption based upon that, that the patient uh, didn't have much of a wave of a prognostic awareness. So the next day after our podcast, I walk into the clinic room, he's there with his wife and his son, very intelligent uh, gentleman and after you know saying you know you've been through a lot i'm really sorry this is going on all those kinds of things my next question was well what 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 do you understand is going on he says well i've got nine months to live so his prognostic awareness you know we're cut right to the chase basically and so we were able to kind of work through that and the like so my assumption going into the room and what actually happened was uh we were, were quite different which was which was good so i want to stick to that theme this whole idea of delivering bad news or at least discussing bad news and i was uh, struck by this article because I think the precept in delivering bad news is that it should be done in person. And there's a lot of precepts in medicine that we have learned all of us over the years that we just assumed were true without any, uh, you know, uh, basically empiric evidence for that. So I love this article. It's entitled, The Disclosure of Bad News Over the Phone Versus In-Person and Its Association with Psychological Distress, a, System- a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, published in Journal of General Internal Medicine in 2023. The authors systematically reviewed 11 studies for qualitative analysis and 9 studies for more uh, meta analysis on the existing published literature between 1997 and 2001 concerning this specific question. If disclosing bad news over the phone impacts patients' psychological distress differently than compared to in-person disclosure, it focused on adult patients or their next-of-kin and assessed outcomes, the psychological distress outcomes like anxiety, depression, PTSD, and satisfaction with care um, when bad news was delivered, either related to a cancer diagnosis or some bad genetic testing, such as for Alzheimer's disease. Most of these studies were done in the U.S., a few from Australia and in various European countries. Uh, interestingly, uh, this, the results showed no significant difference in any psychological distress that was measured, including anxiety, depression, and PTSD, or satisfaction of care um, between the phone and the in-person disclosures suggesting that it's very likely how the information gets delivered versus the uh, place in which it gets delivered that may be the most important variable. Uh, this was a pretty comprehensive study. Obviously, they looked at this uh, this data from a systematic analytic point of view. Um, but you know, most of the studies were small, anywhere between 50 and maybe up to 400 different patient populations and different types of bad news. But this at least brings up the Hypothetical, and particularly since patients' expectations for care, uh, our expectations for delivery care are changing, you know, with Zoom and all the, all the you know, remote care, uh, that this may not be a bad thing if it meets everybody's needs to actually have a family conference. And indeed, I could, I could envision having patients' patient families from all over the world participating in a discussion that would be much more convenient and certainly much more uh, potentially helpful for the patient if this is done remotely. Well, long story short, I thought this was an excellent study. Uh, certainly, it was counterintuitive based upon what I was taught uh, when I was coming up through medical school, and I think it deserves at least some consideration.
0: Good study. Um, boy, Kate, what do, what
1: do you think? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Very yeah, I I interesting study. Uh, a couple of things that caught my eye. I, interesting that the, you said the bad news topics ranged from cancer diagnoses to genetic testing results for Alzheimer's, and that's a not a not a bad news topic that I cover a lot, and I wonder if the the topic itself um, could impact the results, um, or you know if the actual prognostic implications of the of the bad news could affect how how sort of people took it, um, as well as their current state of health. Um, so if people who were either sicker or healthier, you know, sort of felt well at the time they got that news, um, if that could have any impact. I also wonder. I just have to as a as a primary care doc. Um, if the relationship matters, um, you know, if you're hearing that, you know, sort of disembodied voice over the phone, but you, that's from a person, you know, um, versus somebody, you know, the, the counselor at the genetic testing place that maybe you met for an hour, maybe you don't really know, it's just their turn to, to call people with results, um, if that, if that could have had any impact too, um, and then the other sort of factor that I wonder how much it makes a difference is if it's something where you're waiting for an in-person visit for your results versus you know you can get a phone call um, right away. When I used to do, I used to do colposcopies on, on a Monday, and then I would tell people, I'll call you next Monday, uh, no matter what. So if I have good news, bad news, or just if I haven't even gotten the test results, I'll call you just to say the lab hasn't come back to me yet, just so that there was no you know, confusion about, about what. So if you know that you're getting a phone call period, that may be less anxiety provoking than, um, you know, than, than waiting for some indeterminate time to get a face-to-face visit. So, but I agree with you. Good study. Uh, reassuring to know.
0: Henry, final words.
3: Yeah. So I agree. This is an interesting study and it sort of debunks what most of us have been taught. I share with Kate, the question whether or not the relationship um, makes a difference. Wow. I also wondered how much of this could be a reflection of modern times, but studies went started as far back as 97, so maybe it isn't so much a younger generation issue. I would have loved to have seen some of these studies include a qualitative component with the patients who either got the news by phone or in person, what would you have preferred? And then finally, I think this is an opportunity. If you're going to be doing a test or some kind of procedure, like a biopsy or something, maybe at the time to add to your checklist of things to do is to ask the patient, If that's bad news, would you prefer this in person or by phone and identify their own personal preferences? And if they would prefer this by in person, then just go ahead and schedule the follow-up visit regardless.
0: Good advice. Kate, uh, tell us about cannabis. (laughs)
1: Let me tell you this one narrow thing that I learned about cannabis use. Uh, The question again was, which of the following was the most commonly reported reason for cannabis use in a 2022 study among people who reported using it for any medical reason? Uh, Was it depression, anxiety, insomnia, pain, stress, or something else? This was a study done by Kaiser Permanente. So it's a selective population. All these folks had health insurance and they did this study in Washington state where recreational cannabis was legalized a little more than 10 years ago. All that being considered, they sampled about 5,000 of the approximately 100,000 primary care patients that had been seen within a six-month window with oversampling to capture certain populations. They found that about 26% of people who reported using cannabis did so explicitly for medical reasons, and about 35% endorsed using cannabis to manage one or more symptoms, so-called implicit medical use slightly less than 5% of people had documented use of cannabis in their medical record. Of the people who reported using cannabis to manage a medical symptom, pain was the most commonly reported symptom, but with about 28% of people uh, reporting that, followed by sleep and stress at 19% each and worry or anxiety at about 15%. So pain is the correct answer.
0: And that reminds me that I had a gift of cannabis from my brother-in-law, purchased legally in the state of Michigan, <laughs> that I totally forgot to use in my post-op recovery. But I have another one coming up. So, But Mark, if you get it legally in Michigan, but take it in Georgia, what happens? Can, we, can uh, uh, we a uh, We're having a signals room. breaking up a little bit. Signals breaking up a little bit. I can't quite hear yours. <laughs> I don't know, in Georgia. I'm in Michigan. Of course I'm in Michigan. <laughs> <period>. <laughs> All right. Getting me in trouble, man. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Uh, Tell your friends about Primary Care Update. We'd love to uh, have them join us. We'll talk to you soon with more Primary Care Updates.